We know last week we looked at these symbols. We looked at all the symbols of, of the decorations as we decorated the sanctuary together and focused on the hope that they represent. And as I was looking at the drive through nativity this past week, and especially that scene there with uh, the rabbi and all the boys that are learning uh, there at synagogue school, uh, they're studying these prophecies, prophecies like Isaiah, that are pointing them in hope to this future kingdom, to this kingdom of peace. And, and you know, the first scene in that nativity is, is Caesar Augustus, right? And, and his authority that he is, you know, he can speak a word and people have to travel all over the place to be registered and pay taxes. He's just got such commanding authority, but his authority falls under that of the Lord God. God was working through him in amazing ways so that this nondescript couple in in Judea would have to travel to Bethlehem so the prophecy could be fulfilled. Truly an amazing thing. What was it that the people of Israel hoped for? What is it that they longed for? What is it that people today hope and long for? It's peace. Peace is what we are longing for. Peace is what we hope for. Peace is what we need. Now, Advent is this season of longing, this season of expectation, of waiting. Just as kids wait for Christmas to come. Just as I used to remember waiting at the window for my dad to come home every evening. Unless I got in trouble that day. And then I wasn't so much waiting for him to come home. Uh, you know, you think about a groom that's down front at the altar waiting for those doors to open for his bride to be revealed. That's what we wait, we hope, we long for in Advent. For the coming of Christ. For the hope and the peace that He brings. So this morning we're going to focus on peace, this longing for peace. And the Hebrew word for peace is, does anybody know? Shalom. Now, one thing I've learned in my trips to Israel and getting to know people from Israel is that shalom is just sort of a greeting. It's like hola, it's like aloha, it's, it's just the way you welcome and greet people or, or even say goodbye to people. You say shalom. And the reason for that is because originally shalom was a blessing. You would speak peace. You would speak shalom on someone, wishing them prosperity, wishing them wholeness, wishing them blessing. Uh, It can also refer to restoration, completion, that idea of wholeness, of completion. It describes the way God intended for our lives and our world to be. Which is why Jesus says in John 14, 27, Peace. Shalom I leave with you, my peace, my shalom I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So when we read that passage and other passages we'll look at this morning about peace, the the English word peace just doesn't quite capture the full essence like the word shalom does. It doesn't do justice to what Jesus is saying, because He's promising more than just the absence of conflict. Peace with God is more than just getting along or or achieving a ceasefire. Jesus is promising us His shalom. Think about it. He's promising us God's wholeness, God's fullness, God's prosperity. He says, My peace, my shalom, I give to you. Jesus is saying that He's going to take the broken pieces of our lives and make us whole again. He's going to restore us to the way God intended us to be all along. He will bring God's world to completion. 
So when we understand the full meaning of this shalom and all that it implies, our hearts really can cease being troubled. We really can realize that there's no reason to fear when we fully believe and trust in Jesus. So once again, we're going to look at Isaiah, his prophecies. So turn with me to Isaiah 2. Now remember, Isaiah is a prophet to Judah, the southern kingdom. Remember, after Solomon's death, Israel divided in two. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel. Samaria was its capital. They were extremely wicked and rebellious and idolatrous, and every king they had was wicked, and God's final act of judgment on them came through the Assyrians that came and destroyed Samaria and took most of the population away never to return. But the kingdom of Judah in the south, with Jerusalem as its capital, with the temple of God there, well, they weren't much better. I mean, they were a little better. They had some good kings. Uh, but they still descended often into depravity and lawlessness and idolatry. And Isaiah is one of the prophets that God sends to them to warn them of impending judgment. And their judgment would come at the hands of the Babylonians. But God promises to keep a faithful remnant. He tells them that this exile won't be forever. It'll be for one generation. He promises that they will return to their land and rebuild their temple. And ultimately through Judah, God's Messiah will come to rule and reign on all the earth. All nations will come to Jerusalem to seek worship and learn from the Lord. And He will bring a lasting peace to all mankind. So we looked at this in our Old Testament reading. Let's look at it again. Isaiah 2. I'm going to begin with verse 1. The vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will string to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about His ways so that we may walk in His paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nations will not take up sword against nation and they will never again train for war. House of Jacob, come and let's walk in the Lord's light. So we're going to look at three aspects of peace this morning with three different passages from Isaiah. In this one we see the pursuit of peace. Notice that he says, in the last days. Now as you read this, certainly you think about the coming of Christ the first time in Bethlehem. You think about His ministry, His death on the cross and resurrection and, and all that has impacted the world these past 2,000 years. And you can see that some of this prophecy is already coming true. But even for us today, 2,500 years after Isaiah wrote this, these words have yet to be fulfilled. Isaiah is looking past his time, past even our own time, to the completion of time, to the last days. And God's redemptive work in the world will be finished. It's a vision of worldwide peace that all of us can hope in and long for. Now, when we think about the conflicts erupting around the world today, you know, of course, we think of the Israel-Hamas conflict in the Middle East. We think about Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and there's all sorts of factions and, and tribes and groups at war in Africa all the time that we never really hear about in our news media. When we think about that, what a powerful promise, what a beautiful vision this passage of Scripture is. But it can also kind of seem like a pop dream, can it? Because, listen, this is a peace that the United Nations can never achieve. 
This is a peace that will not come about through ambassadors negotiating or through legislatures legislating. This is a kind of peace, a miraculous peace, that can only come through Jesus Christ. And I want us to notice there are three things that the nations will do as they stream to Jesus. Verse 3 gives us three attitudes that are necessary for us to develop if we are going to experience peace. The first is peace requires a worshipful heart. Isaiah says that nations streaming to God in Jerusalem do so to worship Him. He says that they will come to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, to the temple. Now, why do people go to temples? They go to worship, to pray, and to make sacrifices. The nations will come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Now, Paul, for us in Philippians 4, makes a connection between having a worshipful heart and experiencing God's peace. Listen to what he says. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When we come to God in praise and rejoicing, when we come to God in prayer and thanksgiving, which is all things we do in worship, right? Then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So if you need peace in your life today, develop a worshipful heart. Take your worry and turn it into worship. Rejoice in God's presence. Trust in His promises. Give Him thanks for His blessings. Present your needs to Him in prayer and you will have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding to guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Peace requires a worshipful heart. Secondly, peace requires a teachable heart. Isaiah says that the nations will come to Jerusalem because they desire for the Lord to teach them His ways. Particularly in verse 3, it says, The Lord's teaching will go out from Zion. His word will go out from Jerusalem. Now, the Hebrew word there translated teaching is literally the word Torah. The Lord's Torah will go out from Zion, His Word from Jerusalem. Now, Torah specifically refers to the laws of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But more broadly, it can also just mean all of Scripture, all of God's teaching, all of His revealed Word, all of His instructions and commands for us. Isaiah is foreseeing a day when the inspired Word of God will go out to all the world. And there will be a renewed hunger and thirst for people for the Word of God. Psalm 119, you may know, is the longest chapter in the Bible. What is it about? What is Psalm 119 about? It's about the Bible. The longest chapter in the Bible is about the Bible. It's all about the Word of God, His Torah, His teaching, His statutes, His ordinances and commands. And in verse 165 it says, Abundant Peace belongs to those who love your instruction. Nothing makes them stumble. Do you need peace in your life? Do you need peace in your home? Develop a teachable heart that loves the Word of God, that longs to spend time in it every day. If you do, God's Word says you will never stumble. But third, peace requires an obedient heart. 
is it's not just enough to read and study God's Word. You then have to do what it says, right? The nations come to learn from God and His ways, Isaiah says, so they can walk in His paths. Now, walk in the Bible is often a euphemism for how we live our lives. So to walk in God's, to walk in God's path is to apply His Word to our heart. It's to do what God's Word commands us to do. Now, earlier we looked at John 14, 27, where Jesus promises us peace unlike the world's peace. He gives us His peace, right? Remember that? What you have to understand is that verse is at the end of an entire chapter that's all about obedience. Look at John 14, 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. In verse 21, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. And then in verses 23 and 24, Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. And then three verses later, Jesus says, I will give you peace. My peace I will give to you, not as the world gives peace. Peace comes in the context of obedience. So if you're seeking peace in your life, develop an obedient heart, a heart that loves Jesus so much that you want to obey His commands. You want to love Him more than the things of the world. In obedience, we will see and understand more and more about who Jesus is and we will know His peace that passes understanding. Now let's go back to Isaiah 2. And notice the result of this global spiritual awakening with people from all nations worshiping God, hungering to know His Word, longing to live in obedience to it. It says that God Himself will settle disputes among the nations, that He Himself will provide arbitration for many peoples. The peace that Isaiah talks about comes in three specific spheres. First, it's economic peace. He says that weapons will be turned into farming implements. In other words, human technology and ingenuity will no longer be focused on selfish things or on things that bring death and destruction. Rather, our economics will be focused on the flourishing and providing life and fruitfulness for all people. It will be an economic transformation in the world. Secondly, there's political peace. And that's because there won't be a need for politics anymore. Can I get an amen? No need for governments anymore because God Himself will negotiate a lasting peace. God Himself will be the one who arbitrates between people and settles disputes. War may be necessary in our day to keep evil at bay, but violence will never bring about the lasting peace that only comes through the Prince of Peace. And so that brings us to the third sphere of peace, and that is military peace. He says that wars will cease. The training for wars will cease. Annapolis and West Point and the Citadel will have to close their doors because no more will we train for war. This is the hope of every believer. This is the hope of the world. That someday God will right all the wrongs and there will finally be peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But how did this help the people of Judah in Isaiah's day as they are waiting for Babylon to come and to destroy them? How can it help us today as we live in times of fear and uncertainty? Well, look at verse 5. God invites His people to enjoy that future peace right now. 
He says, house of Jacob, come, let's walk in the Lord's light. That's how we know peace today, by walking in the Lord's light. Now, if you look on at the verses after that, you'll discover that Judah was not walking in the light of the Lord, which is why God brings judgment to them. It's why Babylon's coming. It's why Isaiah is having to prophesy to them. They're not walking in the light of the Lord. And so God calls Isaiah as a prophet. Now, turn with me to Isaiah 6. This is the passage that is the calling of Isaiah. Isaiah recounts how he was called by God to be a prophet. It's a familiar passage. We, we look at it to talk about calling, to talk about worship, right? Isaiah is in the temple worshiping God, and God's holiness and splendor and majesty fills the temple, shakes the temple. Uh, and, and Isaiah says, Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, living in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And so God sends an angel with tongs to take the, the coal from the altar and to touch his lips to purify him. And then he calls him. And so we usually when we look at this passage, we end with his calling in verse 8 that says, Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send? Uh, who will go for us? I said, Here am I. Send me. We love that passage. Especially when we talk about missions and things of that nature. Because it just reads and preaches so much better to end with that challenge. Who will go for us? Here am I, Lord, send me. We don't like to go on to the next verse because it kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth because God then says, Go say to these people, keep listening but do not understand. Keep looking but do not perceive. Huh? Make the minds of these people dull. Deafen their ears and blind their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their minds, turn back and be healed. Well, yeah, God, isn't that kind of the point of preaching? That's what I hope, right? When I preach, I want minds to be changed. I want hearts to be softened. I want there to be conviction. I, I, want, I want people to walk out different because they were here. But God is being incredibly honest and upfront with Isaiah. He's saying, Isaiah, from all worldly standards, you're going to fail at your ministry. Because success for you isn't about responses, it's not about numbers, it's not about growth, it's about being very faithful in the face of depressing discouragement. It's about being faithful in the face of unprecedented persecution. And so here we see in this challenging passage, ironically, the promise of peace. Let's look at all what he says. He says, Isaiah says, Until when, Lord? Until when? How long? And he replied, Until cities lie in ruins without inhabitation and houses without people. The land is ruined and desolate. And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving a great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. The people are not going to respond to Isaiah. Their hearts are callous, their ears are dulled, their eyes are closed to the things of God. Sound familiar? Sounds like our world today. And Isaiah's response is so perfectly human. How long, Lord? <laughs> until when? And God's answer is not what Isaiah wanted to hear because he says, well, until the people's hearts, the, heart, the people's hearts are going to stay hard, they're going to be callous, they're going to be unrepentant until they come to the end of their rope. Until they are so desperate they have nowhere to turn but to God. Until the cities lie in complete destruction, devastation, and ruin. Now this almost sounds like peace is unachievable for Israel. I mean, how in the world can God's promises be true if they've lost their land, their temple, and their identity? All hope seems lost. How can there be peace? But God promised peace. 
He never said it would be instantaneous. He never said it would be easy. Isaiah 6 is a far cry from Isaiah 2. But just like the Jews of Isaiah's day, that's the point. And that's the point for us. We live in this in-between time. In between the promise of God and its fulfillment. We're in a season of waiting. And so Isaiah's one-question prayer is echoed by people today. Lord, how long will it be like this? How long will we have to suffer? How much longer do we need to wait for the peace that You promised to arrive? There are times when hope and peace seem so far out of our reach. But in Isaiah 6, all hope is not lost. Look again at verse 13. Like the evergreen in winter, there are signs of life stirring. The remnant of God's people and God's promise telling us that peace is possible. Peace will come. Shalom is a reality that we can and someday will experience and it begins with a stump. And not just any stump but the holy seed of Israel. Now, Isaiah 11, he picks back up on this. Look at Isaiah 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now, notice here it says the stump of Jesse, not the stump of David, right? Jesse is David's father. Why is that significant? Because King David was not the answer. King David was a good king. Was he perfect? No. He's not the fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So by referring to Jesse's stump and line, it's speaking of new beginnings and ancient origins. It's telling us that this king that's going to come will be nothing like the kings of old. He'll even be better than David. By the way, this is where the Jesse tree comes from. I know a lot of our kids are doing a Jesse tree devotional uh, this Advent. So here finally we come to Isaiah's third description of peace. We looked at the pursuit of peace, the promise of peace, and finally the power of peace. Remember, Jesus said He would not give us a weak, worldly version of peace. He doesn't bring us a passing peace, but a peace that passes understanding. He doesn't give us a passive peace, just the lack of conflict, but a passionate peace that longs to see the completion and fullness of God in our lives and in our world. So Isaiah describes here three ways God's powerful peace that passes understanding is unlike anything the world can give. Look at verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. That's on Jesus, on the, 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 the shoot that will go up the, from the stump of Jesse, the branch from His root. That's Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now this verse has some clear parallels to another Messianic verse that we read this time of year in Isaiah, Isaiah 9, 6. It says, For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So we see three things about this peace here. The first is the wisdom of Jesus' peace. His peace brings a wisdom unlike anything the world can give. The reason that Jesus' peace is described as Paul as by Paul as the peace is the peace that passes all understanding is because in the world's eyes it's foolishness. Those who are worldly minded cannot discern the wisdom of this peace. Isaiah says that Jesus is the wonderful counselor. His wisdom and understanding 
is beyond compare. And he describes it further here in 11 verses 3 and 4. He says that his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. Jesus is greater than any judge that's ever lived or ever will live. He doesn't need to see or hear evidence. He already knows. He knows what is true and what is false. He knows what is right and what is wrong. He knows who is guilty and and who is guilty because we're all guilty. Amen? There is no innocence. Jesus knows and He judges rightly with wisdom and integrity. He's the only truly just and righteous judge whose wisdom is unsurpassed. And under His reign, in His shalom, the poor, the needed, and the widowed will find complete justice. Proverbs 13.10 says, Arrogance leads to nothing but strife, but wisdom is gained by those who take advice. Now, it's interesting, this verse, that the arrogant are compared to those who are humble enough to take advice, right? You have the arrogant, and you have those who are able to take advice. Those who are teachable, have teachable hearts. So if arrogance is contrasted with taking advice, then strife is contrasted in this verse, not with peace, but with wisdom. We think of strife and peace as opposites, but he talks about strife and wisdom. So it's a subtle implication, but it's clear. Wisdom and peace are tied together. Jesus' peace brings us His wisdom. Secondly, we see the might of Jesus' peace. Jesus is called in Isaiah 9-6 the mighty God. Here in Isaiah 11, it says He has counsel and strength. Look at verses 4 and 5. He will strike the land with a scepter from His mouth, and He will kill the wicked with a command from His lips. Righteousness will be a belt around His hips, and faithfulness will be a, a sash around His waist. So here the Messiah stands above all worldly governments by His excellence. He stands far above them with righteousness as his belt, with faithfulness as his sash, his judgments will always be right and his decisions fair. While assuring justice for the needy and the poor, he also will bring down the scepter of justice upon the wicked and scorch them with his command or with his breath from his lips. As the ultimate just judge and righteous ruler, Isaiah says that Jesus is going to speak and act in such a way that all sin, all justice, all wickedness, all injustice, all wickedness, all evil will be no more. They will cease to exist. He will rid the world of all evil. In in Revelation chapter 21, if you'll turn with me there, verses 1 through 8, we read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one who was seated on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. 
The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. John's vision here in Revelation is a recasting of Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 11. It's almost like John is seeing the same thing Isaiah saw, but John gets to see it from this side of the cross in the empty tomb. He gets to see it on this side of what Jesus came to do. Isaiah is seeing it from before Christ came. He's seeing it from the perspective of Judah. John sees it from the perspective of the entire world. But it's the same future reality. It's the day of the Lord. It's a day of great might and justice as Christ rightly judges sin. But the end result of peaceful restoration, of wholeness, it's that all things will be made new. We will live in a world without pain, without disease, without death, without sorrow. All those things will have passed away. So let's look finally at how Isaiah describes this same future reality and we will see the restoration by Jesus' peace. Look back at Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 10. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into his snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious. The world will be like Eden before the fall. There will be shalom, not just between God and humankind, not even among people and nations. There will be shalom between people and creation, between creatures themselves. There will be peace. As Paul describes in Romans 8, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay and to the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Jesus, the perfect revelation of the eternal Father and who is the Prince of Peace, will bring ultimate peace and wholeness, not just to us, not just to nations, but to all of creation. The curse will be reversed. The damage of sin will be made whole and healed, and God's redemptive plan will be complete. And all of creation and everyone who is in Christ Jesus will finally enter into God's Sabbath rest. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance, and his resting place and our resting place will be glorious. Now, Micah 5 tells us that the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, will be born in a little town called Bethlehem. But that won't be his beginning. No, Micah says that his origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. That's Micah's best way of understanding and comprehending 
comprehending that the Messiah, when He comes, He will have no birth. He will be born physically into this world, but He will always have been. He will have existed since before the foundations of the world. He is the eternal Son of God. And Micah goes on to describe how He will shepherd God's people. And in verse 5, He says that He will be their peace. He doesn't just come to bring peace. He is our peace. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the King of Kings. He's the Good Shepherd. He didn't come just to bring us shalom. He came to be your shalom. Do you know the peace of God? Maybe in your frantic, stressed, busy life, you need shalom. You may think you need it desperately. How can you come to know that true, abiding peace that passes understanding? How can you find a peace that brings wisdom and rest and might and restoration? You have to have a worshipful heart. A worshipful heart that humbles itself in the presence of Almighty God. A teachable heart that is humble enough to say, I don't know everything I need to know. I need the Lord to teach me. A heart that wants to be obedient to what Jesus Christ says to you. And the first thing Jesus Christ says to you is repent. Repent. Turn from your life of sin and put your trust in the One who died on the cross for you. Have you done that today? Do you know the Prince of Peace in your heart? If you do not, I invite you to come as we sing in just a minute. I'd love nothing more than to introduce you to the One who can bring wholeness and completeness and restoration into your life, who can give you that peace that passes all understanding. And that peace starts with knowing that your sins are forgiven and that you can stand in right relationship with the Holy God. If you need to do that today, I beg for you to come. As Christians who know this peace, God calls us to be agents of that peace. Our job is to carry the same news that Isaiah has proclaimed to a world that's lost and dying and in need to hear that there is a Prince of Peace. He's coming again and they can know Him today. We are to be ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors for peace. Fellow believers, are we doing that? As we go into this world this week, you're going to come across people that have no peace in their heart. It may be evident... They may, have, they may be very good at masking it, but they need God's peace. Will you be the one to help them find it? Would you stand with me and pray? Father, we thank you for the promise of peace, a peace that we can know today, but not in fullness, Lord. We, we can know that peace in our hearts, but that peace has not come yet fully to this world. And we pray and long for the day, even so come, Lord Jesus, that you will return and make all things new and put all things right, and all injustice will cease. Father, we pray for that. And in the meantime, help us as lights in the darkness, as ambassadors of Christ, help us to bring that peace to other people by sharing with them the truth of the gospel, the story of Christmas, that you have come to redeem us from our sins and to give us peace with God. Father, if there's anyone here listening or or listening even later this week online, Father, that needs to do that, I pray they would do that. I pray they would turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in you and ask Jesus Christ to forgive them and to live within them and to help them to walk in your ways. It's in Jesus' name we pray.